I came to know Christ when I was 12 years old through a next-door neighbor who led my mom to the Lord and then my dad to the Lord, and we began going to church with them and had a really good experience for about five years, something like that, until we moved away and um, began going in that new place to a new church, and it was <laughs> muy diferente, as they said in, in uh, Panama, where I had lived for a while. Um, the pastor there uh, saw God as an angry father figure. Uh, it seemed to me, I mean, I, th I think the basic root of that, he would have said it was Scripture, but I think the basic root of that was that I think he was an angry man, and he saw in Scripture that, that God sometimes, that God hates sin, that God can judge sin. But what we got from him, it seems to me, over several years there was a steady diet of that. And I can still see him and hear his voice. Um, he was very animated in the pulpit, and he would turn bright red in the face as he said this with great gusto. Uh, his theology was that um, in the beginning of every new era where God works with his people, he strikes somebody dead just to prove he's serious about people not sinning. Now, we all struggle with sin, of course, but I can still hear him and see his red face when he would say, I think he thought he was comforting us, but, but he would say, are you trying to serve the Lord? And are you working hard to serve the Lord? And are you striving and working and praying and, and doing all you can? Well, you better not give up. If you're tired, if you're weary, if you think you can't make it, you better not give up because God will strike you down. He'll strike you down like he did Ananias and Sapphira. He'll strike you down. And I don't know how many times I heard him say that kind of thing. Well, if somebody has been struck down beside you, try to encourage them, you know, but, but he, he saw God as an angry disciplinarian. Now, I think my pastor there was half right, but therefore all wrong. So here's a question for you. Is it true that one of the great Christian doctrines is that God is just, and at the end of history, God will right every wrong, and He will give justice to his enemies, and he will make sure that nothing that has been done in secret, nothing that has harmed other people, will that people will get away with anything. Is that true? Is that a great Christian doctrine? Well, I believe it is. Thank our God that at the center of the universe reigns someone who is just and loves justice, and that the injustice that we have often seen so frequently, God is not blind to that. Is it also true that Hebrews 12.6 declares that the one the Lord loves, He disciplines and He chastens every son whom He receives? Does Scripture say that? Yes. yes. So, it's not a question of, is God someone who loves justice or is God someone who loves us, because He's both, of course. But it is a question of, when you come to know Christ by faith in His death for you, when you've entered into a relationship with God, is God's fundamental attitude toward you what my pastor in those days thought? Is it that he's convinced that God's antenna is always up saying, Aha! You've done it again! And I'm going to get you. 
Is that God's fundamental core desire is to punish us for what we do wrong? And I think you're right. God loves justice. That's true. That's why Christ died for us. But God's fundamental core heart for His children, I want to persuade you, is to bless you. God disciplines us, yes. God does not make life easy for us, <laughs> as we wish He would. We always wish that, but God knows better. But God's heart for you is to bless you, and I want to show you that from Scripture. I eventually got mature enough in the Scripture, went to seminary, became a pastor, and so on. But I eventually, as I matured in my grasp of Scripture, uh, came to see this pastor that I referred to as a good example of a bad example, because he thought he was being scriptural by reminding us that God hates sin, and God does hate sin, and sometimes we don't hear enough about that. But it seems like all he ever wanted to talk about was how God hates sin, and I think he was, he was half right. Yeah, God hates sin, but he's all wrong in saying that that's the way he relates to you as his child. I want to show you that from Scripture. So would you please turn with me to the book of Numbers, believe it or not. Numbers chapter 6. Genesis is my favorite. Uh, the Torah or the Pentateuch of which it's a part I, is uh, sort of second favorite. <laughs> and this is a beautiful, beautiful text that is embedded in this book that I think says what I suggested. God's heart for you is to bless you. I'd like to begin reading in Numbers chapter 6, uh, beginning in verse 21, after we pray. So would you bow with me in prayer, please? Father, your word is filled with beauty and goodness because it reveals you. But we can't see that unless your Spirit brings it alive in our hearts and unless you help us to apply it to our lives. And I ask that what your Word says would come home to us by your Spirit's working in us and that we would be richly and profoundly blessed and encouraged to draw close to you in love and in worship and in obedience. We ask in the rich name of Christ. Amen. Numbers chapter 6, verse 21, <laughs> believe it or not. This is the law of the Nazarite who vows his vows according, uh, uh, his offering to the Lord in accordance with his separation in addition to whatever else he can afford. He must fulfill the vow he has made according to the law of the Nazarite. Now, chapter 6 ends there, and I read that because in a moment we'll talk about some contextual issues here. Verse 22, the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons, that's the ancient priesthood of Israel, tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they will put my name on the Israelites, and I will bless them. 
Before we draw three lessons from this, this beautiful uh, blessing, I'd like to give some contextual things that will help you see some of the richness and the, the depth that is here. The, um, the poem is, of course, written in the Hebrew language, and it is uh, very carefully constructed. The Hebrew here, verse 24, is three words long. The Hebrew of verse 25, uh, 25 is five words long, and the next one is seven words long. Three, five, seven. Very carefully constructed to build and grow in the intensity and the grandeur of what God is doing for His people. The, um, in each case, you'll see in the uh, English language here, talk about the Hebrew in a bit, but the English language here, each line begins with the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord makes face shine upon you and so on. And then you have, after the Lord, you have two verbs in each case. And uh, the second verb elaborates more on what the first verb means. Quite beautiful. And this is the mantra of ancient Israel. In the New Testament, Jesus taught His disciples how to pray for blessing, if you will. In the Old Testament, this is sort of like the Lord's Prayer of the Old Testament where God instructed the priesthood how to place blessing upon ancient Israel. This is what the priests were to say every day to the people in Israel. Um, <laughs> the priest was not supposed to say to you when you came and brought a sin offering again, Right? I mean, I'm glad I don't have to do that. Confessing to the Lord privately is sort of enough. <laughs> but, but the priest was not supposed to say to you when you brought a sin offering, Oh, brother, are you, you were just here last week for the same thing. What's wrong with you? Why don't you act like me? I'm a priest. I'm holy. You, oh boy. That's not what the priest is supposed to say. The priest is supposed to say, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you His peace. And you certainly should have had this memorized by the time you were three years old or four years old in ancient Israel. The fact that God instructed the priesthood to say this regularly, daily, continually, generation after generation to the people of Israel shows that this is God's heart for His people. There are other things you can say about God. That's why Scripture is a big, big book. But the mantra that every Jewish child should have had memorized by the time they were probably three years old is the Lord wants to bless you and keep you and smile upon you and give you His grace and His peace. Does that make sense to you that this is the heart and the core and the foundation of God's heart for you, His permanent desire for you? Make sense? Right? This is what Scripture is saying. This is God's continual word that was spoken more than anything else to ancient Israel. And I think that it's magnificent for us too. So, God's desire is to bless you. Now, we looked at some contextual issues. Let's look at three lessons in the text. The first lesson that I want to suggest from the text is that God's, uh, that, that blessing comes only from the Lord. Now, let me explain a little bit and then give a number of particulars. But 
sometimes we tend to think that things that happen in church come from the Lord. But if I happen to be born like my dad was, say, with mechanical ability, became a mechanical engineer, that if I'm good in mechanical things or if I have artistic talent like my sister has and I have zero of and so on, that whatever I've got, that's natural. Uh, but if it's sort of a spiritual kind of thing, that's from the Lord. And, of course, that's purely false. One of the things the Reformers in the 16th century had to bring back to the church was that everything you have comes from the Lord, and everything you do is to serve the Lord. So a teacher is not inferior to a pastor, right? And a mechanic is not inferior to a missionary, and so on, because all of us as God's people are supposed to do everything we do to the Lord, and it's all service to Him, and all of our gifts come from the Lord. And the intelligence you have or the skills you have or the gifts you have personality-wise that enable you to support the family the way you do or raise children the way you do or do well in school the way you do, those are all God's gifts to you. Blessing ultimately all only comes from the Lord. He is the source. And the text is telling this when each of these phrases begins with, the Lord, bless you and keep you, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord is the source of our blessing. Everything good we have comes from Him. James said exactly that same thing, as you know. Now, interestingly, the Hebrew is not only carefully constructed here, but uh, Hebrew students of Hebrew Scripture notice this kind of thing, that if you take the phrase, the Lord, out of this blessing, you have 12 words left, right? If you take out the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, you have 12 words left. And the fact is that when you have something carefully constructed in Hebrew with 12 words in it, what in this case Moses is telling us is that this blessing was carefully constructed to remind the 12 tribes of Israel that every one of the tribes of Israel is continually upon the heart of God, and every one of His children God desires to bless all the time. Remember we read the last verse of the Nazarite blessing just before this. Chapter 6 is all about making a Nazarite vow, which means you could devote yourself in ancient Israel to God for a special kind of service, for usually for a period of time. Samson was a Nazarite, for example. <laughs> Not a very good one, but he was one. But what Moses is doing by giving us this lengthy description throughout chapter 6 of what it meant to be a Nazarite and do devoted, specially devoted things to God for a period of time was that God honors that. God honors it when we do special, unique things for Him. But immediately, God follows that by saying, tell Aaron and his sons to bless all the people all the time because God's blessing is not related, is not, it's not limited to those who are sort of super power kind of people in terms of serving God. It's for all of His people all the time because we're His children and He loves us and He's devoted to us like a good mother or father, and He wants to bless us all, not just people that are spectacular. The Lord is a source of blessing. My guess is if I ask you to raise your hand, you'd say, yeah, I believe that. I believe that too, right? I mean, I went to seminary. I've got to believe that, right? But I think it's also true that we struggle with that, don't we, sometimes? Um, Jeremiah chapter 2, later on in Israel's history, says this about Israel. He says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, 
broken cisterns that can hold no water. A cistern uh, in a dry climate in the ancient Near East was uh, a pear-shaped kind of thing, about probably 40 feet deep. Can you imagine Joseph being thrown into a cistern? Uh, a cistern was not like an open pit six feet deep for, uh, uh-uh, no, horrible experience for him. But the cistern was to collect rainwater or spring water so that in the dry months you would have water and you wouldn't be uh, in desperate shape. But God says ancient Israel stood beside a running stream or spring of water. That was himself. And instead, they turned away hoping for, if you will, metaphorically, hoping it would rain and they would get their needs met some other way than turning to the Lord. (laughs) Well, people haven't changed much, so do you struggle with that sometimes? In your head, you say, God will take care of me, but then... You find yourself trusting yourself to take care of yourself often. I mean, that's where we struggle. That's where ancient Israel struggled. Now, this tendency not to expect God to be the one who really takes care of us is, I mean, of course, the Bible calls it sin, but I think we can say a little bit more about that. Um, I believe, I believe I could show you this from Scripture in, in Genesis, but I believe that God made us each with two fundamental human drives, and I think this explains who we are and what makes us tick. The first one is that we need a sense of security. That is, we want other people to love us and make us feel worthwhile. The second one is a sense of significance. That is, we want to, our activities, our daily life, the things that we spend our time doing, our job, our hobbies, whatever, we want them to seem worthwhile and like they're making a difference so that we are not wasting our time. And I think sort of intuitively, if you don't have a strong sense of security, we call that being lonely, and it's a rotten place to be. And if you don't have a strong sense of, secu- uh, of significance, we call that being bored, and that's a bad place to be. So I'm convinced that God made us dependent, that is, dependent on these external things so that we feel loved from external sources, and we feel a sense of validation of who we are in our lives and our activities from some external source. But it means we are dependent beings. We're not like God where we're self-contained and we don't need anything outside of ourselves. We do need things outside of ourselves, right? Now, that being the case, the fact that we're sinners is a problem because when I was born, I didn't know Christ. And that's bad because when I was two or three years old, I couldn't articulate words like security and significance or anything else like that. But I did feel as a human being what I wanted, and I wanted to be loved, and I wanted a sense of validation of my activities and my life and things like that. And so what I did was what I believe we all do. That is, I came up with ways of approaching life to get my needs met. And I was little, and I couldn't talk much, and I couldn't explain things, but I felt, and I tried to come up with ways of getting those needs met, which had nothing whatsoever to do with God. Anybody here identify with that? Shouldn't ask that. Never mind. Okay. I can remember how good it felt when I was very little, you know, four or something, when people would say, Van's a nice boy. Van's an obedient boy. Van says yes, sir, and no, sir. I'm from the South. You gotta, gotta get, get the idea. But, um, I can remember how good that felt and how, how that made me sort of glow inside. 
And I learned uh, that if you act certain ways, people will like you, and then people will affirm you, and then you feel good about yourself, right? Well, we all do those kinds of things in various ways. The problem is not that God doesn't, God doesn't want me to have the feeling of being loved and being validated. The problem is that I learned how to do it without God at all. And I think we all did. And that's why it's natural for us, even once we come to faith in Christ, it's natural for us to still feel like, I can get this done on my own. And we have to remind ourselves that God is the source of our blessing, right? Sometimes people say, if I please other people and if I'm compliant and if I obey the rules and if I'm polite and if I'm kind and if I affirm others, then they will make me feel loved, and then I'll be okay, right? What Scripture is telling us here is that God wants to be the source of that kind of validation that I need. He made me that way to drive me to Himself, but my tendency is to go anywhere but to Him, even as a believer. Does that make sense? Okay, good. Thank you. Number one, blessing comes from God. Number two, let's go further in the text. The text also goes on to say that God's blessing fundamentally means that He wants to satisfy your deepest needs. Now, I have to give you some detail to get you to there, but that's the point. So, the Lord bless you and keep you. In the Hebrew language here, the way this poem is written in the Hebrew, the word bless actually is the first word in the blessing and the last word in the blessing. It doesn't come out that way when they translate it, unfortunately. But, but people in the literature call that a, an inclusio or a framing device. That is, when you take a piece of literature and the author begins and ends something, especially like this, a piece of poetry, with the same word, it's to make that stand out in your mind. Blessing is what God wants for you, right? So this thing begins and ends with blessing. So the question is, what is blessing? <laughs> it's a Christian word. It's actually not a religious word, but it can be used that way. This is just plain fun. Uh, no extra charge for this. But the Hebrew word blessing is barak. Isn't that interesting? Where have I heard that before? Barak. Barak. Never mind. I, I can't remember. Anyway, the Hebrew word is barak or barak. <laughs> okay. But it is. It is. Uh, but the Hebrew word bless, its root meaning is for God to take your natural capacities and to enhance them. That's what it means. First time it's used is in Genesis chapter 1, and God blesses the humans and then says, multiply and fill the earth. That is, humans have the natural capacity to give birth to children, and God enhances that so that they can superabundantly produce because God wants this entire planet filled with billions of people to fulfill the cultural mandate that He commanded uh, in the garden that Adam and Eve were to start working on. It means in the Old Testament that God enhanced their natural capacity. So for Abraham, that meant that a man who couldn't have children could have children by God's miraculous design. It also meant that Abraham, who farmed, became extremely wealthy. And God superabundantly blessed this man in multitudes of ways. 
I wish I could say, the Scriptures say, that God's always going to make you rich, God's going to make you successful, God's going to make you prosperous in every way. It's called the health and wealth gospel, and it's false. But it is true that while we don't get everything God promises to us in this life, we get a lot of it, and we get lots of good stuff. And God's heart for you is to bless you, even though He doesn't always prevent pain, and He doesn't always remove difficulties, and He doesn't always make it easy for us. The text goes on to say about explaining this blessing, May God make His face to shine upon you. May the Lord turn His face toward you. The basic picture there is God, we would say in English, may God smile upon you. That's what that means. So let me give you a little bit more of a definition of what blessing means in, in, in more down-to-earth terms and then expand upon that a bit. What blessing means is that we have a face-to-face relationship with God who loves us and is our best friend and cares for us and gives us His good things. That's what it means means to know the God who loves you so much that He's attentive to your every need your whole life. He's more devoted to you than the best friend you can have or the best spouse you can have or the most devoted uh, parent or child or anybody else. May the Lord smile upon you. Isn't that what every child wants, for the parent to smile upon them? That's what we want when we're children because God made us that way. I remember a woman telling me her story uh, a number of years back. Uh, There were three kids in the family, and uh, their father was an alcoholic. And she told me how she yearned for her father to love her. She wanted to climb up, up into his lap and have him stroke her hair and pay attention to her and tell her stories and hug her and listen to her. And every time she tried, he just turned her away. He wasn't interested. He's too preoccupied with it, the own, you know, his own sort of his own issues. And he couldn't pay attention to her and didn't pay attention to her. And what she felt was rejected and unloved and uncared for. It's tragic, horrible kind of thing. It affected all three of the kids in different ways, but the way she tried to cope with that was she said to herself, you know, um, if, if I can, maybe if I bring him his coffee, maybe if I always say, yes, sir, maybe if I do everything he says, maybe if I always tell him what he says, maybe if I try to think b- beforehand of what he might ask, maybe if, maybe if, maybe I can earn his approval. And this precious little girl formed a way of looking at life from the time she was very small that essentially said, the one who's supposed to love me doesn't. Maybe I can generate that love by, maybe I can extract it by acting in certain kind of ways. Isn't that horrible? Paying for love, right? It's tragic. What this text is saying to us is that God wants to give to you what your father or mother or both, we hope, should have given to you. Right? In other words, let me say it in a different way. I'm certainly not saying God wants you to ignore human love and find God's love. It's the other way around. How would you know how powerful and meaningful love is unless you experience it from another human? And so God has given us a drive to experience We've said uh, security and significance. We'll talk about the security of the love part today. 
how would I know how wonderful that is to feel unless I feel it from other people? God gave me parents and He gave you a family so that you could see how magnificent that is and then eventually as you mature and you say, the love of my father or my mother or my spouse or my children is rich but it's not enough, then you would turn to Him. And it's through the experience of human examples of and the feelings we get from that that we see how desperately we need what God wants to give us. That's essentially what I'm saying. Some people got a tremendous amount of love from their parents, others did not. If you got it from your parents, then God wants you to say, rich as that was, I know it can go far deeper and I want more from God that is even better than that. And if you didn't get it from your parents, God wants you to know He wants to give it to you, except better. Better than they could have done it if they'd done it the best they ever could have done it. Blessing means, in other words, God desiring to meet your deepest needs. And fundamentally, yeah, your need for food, clothing, and shelter, yeah, other things, yes. But fundamentally, your need, I believe, for a sense of security, being loved and cared for and valued, and a sense of validation of you as a human being in your life and your activities and your labor and your gifts. So God is the only source of blessing. Blessing means that God yearns to meet your deepest needs, even though that won't fully, fully, fully happen until eternity. But I want to say one more thing, and it's this, that this flows right out of the last two, but I want to elaborate on those a bit, and it's simply this, that only God can satisfy your deepest needs. Only God can do that for us. And I want to try to make that, I hope, a little bit specific and concrete and down to earth. Again, there's nothing wrong with you saying, I want to be loved, for example. Jesus said, why do you worry about what you eat, what you drink, what you wear? In other words, everything that we really do need. And he said, your heavenly Father knows you have need of those things. This is Matthew 6. But he said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then those other things will be added to you. See, God wants you to feel loved, for example. But he wants you fundamentally to get it from him, and then he will add other things as well. St. Augustine, in his book, in The Confessions, in the 4th century, um, not trying to be academic, but I think it's quite rich, said on the first page of The Confessions about God, he said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And what he was saying was, for example, I must be loved as a human. I'm hardwired to need that, but I'm restless until I get what I need from you finally. One of the things he does in the Confessions, he tells a story. Uh, before Augustine was a Christian, which happened in his early 30s, uh, in his 20s he had a very, very dear guy friend. They were very, very close, like brothers. And they did everything together, spent a lot of time together. And then in his 20s, his friend suddenly died. And Augustine grieved immensely over this. But he's also the greatest uh, intellectual in the West in a thousand years. So he's also thinking. And 
later when he wrote the Confessions, he sort of works through this, and he said what he experienced besides just the pure emotion was, he said to himself, if I can say it in sort of contemporary terms, he said, I'm hardwired to need love, and yet all the love I can get as a non-Christian, like he was at that time, all the love I can get comes from other humans, and it is always tenuous. Other human beings can die. Other human beings can turn away from you when they learn who you really are. Other human beings aren't reliable. Your spouse may divorce you, and so on. So Augustine recognized that the need he had, rich as it was to be loved by a friend, he also had a mother who loved him tremendously, Augustine realized that being loved by another human was rich and wonderful, but not enough. Does that make sense to you? It's just not enough. You were made to enjoy human love so that you would press on to find the love of God, which is even richer and deeper. If God loves you, is it not true that you are really, really, really validated as a human? Nobody can think that you're worthless or you're not important because God thinks so, and God's vote is bigger than theirs, right? If some, some idiot thinks you're a jerk, well, we're all pretty frail. Okay, okay, okay. But as far as our human worth goes, God doesn't think you're worthless. God loves you. He sent His Son to die for you. You belong to Him, and He considers you extremely important. That validates you beyond anything any human can ever do, and death itself cannot stop it. We could say the same thing about the sense of significance that a human gets through their labors and all of that, but we'll just leave it at what we've said. So, God's deepest heart for you is to bless you. He's the only source of blessing. It means for Him to meet your deepest needs. And He yearns to do that and is the only one who can do that. So, may I make three suggestions and then we'll be done. One is, you may be here today and you're really not sure that you know God in that kind of way. Um, Christianity essentially means that because God is perfect and just and I'm not, that has to be taken care of and Christ came into the world to die in my place so that He took God's wrath for me so that I don't have to bear it. And God wants you, He yearns for you to say, I'll never be good enough to take care of the things I've done that I shouldn't have done, but if I just rest in what Christ did, if I realize Christ died in my place, God's, all God's demands against me are satisfied. Jesus took care of that for me, resting in that, trusting in that, believing that, initiates a relationship with God where He becomes your best friend. And you begin to experience what it means to be loved in a way that transcends what humans can do for you, whether it was bad or good what you got from people before you. Secondly, if you're a believer in Christ... Let me encourage you to meditate upon that. Maybe memorize this text, but meditate upon that. Let it really sink in that when you say to yourself, I've got to earn this person's approval or I've got to be successful or else, and you realize you're basing your validation or your sense of worth upon what you can get achieved, remind yourself that you don't need that. Those may be good things, but what you need... What you need to say to yourself is, no, God has validated me, God's love for me, 
takes care of that need, and now I can pursue, to, pursue what I need to do for other kinds of reasons. Finally, I think this is good news. I love this text. And the fact that if your spouse leaves you, God can care for you profoundly. The fact that if you didn't get love from your folks the way you should have, that God can begin to fill that void and to repair the damage that was done, that is good news. And I think it's sad that in the world around us these days, in the global south, Christians are sharing their faith like crazy. And in China and in South Asia and in Africa and in Latin America, people are coming to Christ in huge numbers and the church is flourishing and growing. But in the United States, we have people like me, people with PhDs and people who write books and, you know, good theological library will have a million books in it. We have scholars, we have resources, we have expertise, and the church is shrinking, and few people are coming to Christ. In other words, we need to re-initiate, re-recommit ourselves before the Lord to sharing that good news often, because that's what people need more than they need anything else. They just don't know it. But if you and I can say to them, the God that saved me, the God that I know, is not just about religion, and it's just not about religious things at church. It's about God meeting the deepest needs that make me take as a human being. That's worth sharing. I try, I don't always succeed, but I try every morning when I'm groggy and wake up to say, Lord, give me an opportunity to share my faith today. I'm not naturally gifted at it. Most of us aren't. But may we, if we don't know him, come to know Christ today and trust in what he did for us. Talk to somebody about, here about that if, if you don't know what that means. May we let it sink in how God loves us and how that touches the deepest part of who we are in profound ways. And may we be those anxious to share that good news with those who do not yet know and whose hearts are breaking because the one who yearns to fill those needs, they do not yet know. Well, let me close by offering you a blessing, which sounds like this. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you His shalom, His well-being, His flourishing. Would you bow with me in prayer? Our Father, we thank you that you are good. We thank you that you are the opposite of irrelevant to the real things that we face. You are the core and the foundation. You are everything we need. Father, forgive us for the blindness and the, the, the simple-mindedness that has let us miss that obvious truth. And may what your word has said to us today richly encourage us and drive us to you in love and in gratitude and worship and in obedience. Father, now as the offering is taken, may what we give from our pockets be a symbol of what we want to give to you of our hearts and of our lives, and may it be used to share Christ in Russia and Ukraine and around the world with people who need to know Christ. We ask in his name. Amen.